Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, in just five weeks at the general election, New Zealanders will also vote on two of the more polarising social issues of our time. The controversial question of whether people with terminal illness should be able to take their own life has dropped into election year out of the biscuit tin, with a member's bill in the name of the act leader, David Seymour, being drawn from that famous ballot. New Zealanders will get to have their say on cannabis, along with who they want to govern the country at the 2020 general election. Cabinet signed off on the referendum, which fulfils part of the confidence and supply deal between Labour and the Greens. The actual legislation for both of them is already out there, so... What exactly will we be voting on in September? Are they both binding? And how long will they take to come into force? But first, the biggest question of all, and the perfect man to answer it. Arthur Pomeroy, I'm Professor Emeritus of Classics at Victoria University of Wellington. You are the man to answer this question, Art. Is it referendums or referenda? So I suggest we just refer to them as referendums. The good thing is there are, in fact, no ancient Romans around to complain that we're messing up their language. Right. Now we've got that out of the way. Let's talk referendums, starting with a bill which has been in the works since before the 2017 election. As we know, Act Leader David Seymour's end-of-life choice bill was pulled from the private member's ballot yesterday. Carolise Trays is a freelance journalist who's written a book about the end-of-life choice bill. It's called The Final Choice. I began by asking her whether there's a difference between euthanasia and assisted dying. So assisted dying is a term that we've used uh, in our country to uh, describe the whole process, but euthanasia is a method used within assisted dying. So that's when uh, a doctor, a nurse injects a person with a lethal dose. Assisted suicide is the other term we need to include which means that that dose is self-administered. So both euthanasia and assisted suicide will be included in our assisted dying law. So how does assisted dying differ from a person with a terminal illness who refuses treatment or a person who has a do-not-resuscitate order? Yeah, sure. Refusing treatment and do-not-resuscitate orders basically require the medical professionals to not intervene in what is naturally occurring. So these are already legal, but euthanasia, assisted suicide or assisted dying uh, requires a direct intervention with the intention to bring death. What will the question be when we go to the ballot in September? Uh, the question that we will be asked in this binding referendum is do you support the End of Life Choice Act coming into force? And is it as simple as sort of a 50% plus one vote will do the trick and boom, the legislation will come in? How will that work? Yes, it is currently an act, so it has been voted through Parliament. It's just awaiting the results of the referendum. So if the majority of us say yes, this act will become enacted, it will be live. And if the majority vote no, the law will be struck down. But the law is actually passed now. The the act has actually been passed, so it doesn't have to go through the first reading, second reading, select committee stage? Not at all. So it's already done that. It's literally sitting in wait. Nothing can be changed or corrected. It is on the law books. We're just giving it the live status. Are we going live or are we throwing this in the bin? The cannabis referendum is a non-binding referendum. Is this a binding referendum? 
yes, this is a binding referendum. Again, yes, we have to differentiate between the Cannabis and the End of Life Choice Act. So this is a very specific piece of legislation that we are voting, whereas the Cannabis, it's a piece of legislation that will continue to go through the process and be amended. This one is done. It's, it's that final tick. Are there other countries overseas that do have enacted assisted dying legislation? Yes, so there are currently 13 jurisdictions internationally that have legalised an equivalent law. So some of them have slightly different names, so medically assisted dying. Uh, But also to note there's more than 30 nations and jurisdictions that have rejected this law in the process as well, which sometimes is not mentioned in the conversation. The NZMA's position is that we remain opposed to both euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide, we regard both of these practices to be harmful to individuals, somewhat literally, that they are not consistent with the ethical principles under which doctors practice. If this referendum comes back positive, how will it work? Who will be able to make this decision and how will the process work? First up, you have to be eligible. There's an eligibility criteria. Some of that is you have to be over 18. You have to be a Kiwi citizen or a permanent resident. You have to have a prognosis. So uh, with six months or less to live, um, you must have an ongoing decline in physical capability and experience unbearable suffering that cannot be eased you also, sorry, need to be able to make an informed decision about assisted dying. So, yes, there's eligibility, and then there's a bit of a process you go through uh, if you apply for this. Who decides whether an illness is likely to end a person's life within six months? The doctor has to give the prognosis. So that's a doctor's job, which is a scary job. Yeah. Prognosis If you talk to a palliative care specialist or a doctor, a prognosis, they would describe it as an art rather than a science. Mm. So there are cases, again, we're using this as such a um, a strong defining factor of of testing whether someone should be eligible, but in fact it's not always accurate and that is um, very well known. There have been cases where doctors get prognosis very wrong and some of those cases I've included in, in my book that I've written. I've talked to a few people that were given 12 months and that was eight, ten years ago. Mm. Um, there's other stories yeah, of, of absolutely wrong diagnosis, wrong illness, being uh, on morphine and treated and they actually had nothing. So it, it's just, it's that's why this is we've got to check the robustness of this law. We've got to say, um, is this going to be right in every case? Because if it's not, it's someone's life that's being risked. Unbearable suffering. That's an interesting choice of language. I guess you're kind of limited in terms of the choice of language that you can use, but that um, it would seem as difficult to pin down unbearable mm-hmm. suffering. It's quite broad, and I think. Uh, it's an interesting term they've included, but that is really only interpreted by the patient. So um, <laughs> it's very vast in what that could mean. Is it just one doctor who makes the call? No, well, originally or the first time, you're obviously going to be seeing a doctor, and if you request assisted dying, that doctor will start a process. However, as part of the process, a second doctor will be called upon to give their opinion and to reassess the file and the case to ensure that it is following the protocol. 
The public will now decide whether terminally ill adults will be given the right to end their lives. MPs last night voted by 69 to 51 in favour of the end-of-life choice bill promoted by the ACT MP David Seymour. The informed decision element of it means what? That um, somebody with noticeable dementia couldn't do this? Would that disqualify somebody from that position? Yeah, so basically they've they've used the word uh, informed decision in the actual act. It talks about competency. So it's a type of test, uh, well, it's an analysis the doctor will do to basically uh, check that the patient knows the consequence of the decision they're making. So, and again, a rather interesting term used, but it's that that patient understands the ramifications of what they're applying for. What if a person can't vocalise their thoughts or their position, as could be the case with some illnesses? Yeah, so the Act only says a person needs to inform the doctor of their wish and communicate their decision in some way. So interpretation, uh, they need to be able to inform the doctor. <laughs> Whatever means possible. You could write it on a piece of paper, you could tell them. Yes. Okay, let's say a person is in this position. What happens then. They talk to their doctor and they say, I want to do this. Where do things go from there? Uh, Many doctors have said very publicly they don't want anything to do with this. And that's an interesting thing to note because Mm. it means that the doctor you're most likely going to be having this conversation with it will be someone recommended from our review committee. So this will be a doctor come in that has agreed to this process and sits down with you and, and starts to take you through, um, yes, you're eligible, you've, you fit the criteria, so so um, now we'll need to fill in a form, we'll need to get a second doctor's opinion to make sure that you indeed follow that eligibility and the process correctly. We'll send that form through to a review committee and a registrar who will check that form has been done properly. That doctor will ask you some questions. Uh, part of their their job is to assess for coercion or pressure, so they will have that job of trying to find if there's any pressures put on you. You will be doing a competency check, uh, but you you won't be screened for mental illness or depression. That is not part of this law. So technically, you could actually have some difficulty with anxiety, and, and that won't necessarily have an effect on the result. So sit through that with the doctor, they send the form off, it will come back if you've all been cleared, you set a a day and a time and which way or method you would like to receive it. Then I guess the day comes, if we're talking euthanasia, the doctor or nurse will put you into a coma first so uh, you'll be asleep and then the lethal dose of or the drug is administered either by injection or through a tube triggered by the doctor or nurse practitioner. So that's euthanasia. And with assisted suicide, the person could drink a drug cocktail, basically. It's usually a powder mixed in a drink or triggered again by an IV, but the patient triggers it, not the doctor. You you might not be able to answer this question, but um, do we know what it would feel like? Uh, You can. I have observed a few um, of these processes happening uh, overseas, you know, there are some documentaries that have been very powerfully made following the stories of those that have chosen to use this overseas. And um, it doesn't look painful. It looks intense. And it's, uh, it's hard to describe what it's like. 
Carolise mentioned something interesting there. Doctors have to be on the watch for coercion. This is a big concern, the idea that someone might be pressured into ending their life by others close to them. So what exactly will those doctors be looking out for? Yeah, well, first up, I have to acknowledge I'm not a doctor, but I, I do know that coercion is very difficult to find. It's something that lawyers, they just do their head in trying to weed it out. So um, I guess they will be asking questions around the family. How did they come to that conclusion that this is the treatment they wanted to administer or, you know, to request? Under the Act, it says that doctors are required to do their best to detect it. So that's the standard of measurement. It could just be a couple of questions. It could be a uh, couple of phone calls. But they, the patient has to give permission to the doctor um, of who to, who to talk to. So uh, the doctor won't be able to access everybody in the conversation. You mentioned as well that people would not be screened for mental health issues. Somebody could very well hypothetically have a debilitating case of depression and that that could influence their decision-making, but that wouldn't be taken into account as to whether or not their wish was carried out. Why not? <laughs> Good question again, probably one for the, the MPs that were in this uh, lawmaking process. But um, just to be clear, you can't just have depression and you're not eligible based on that, but um, it's not it's not in that eligibility criteria. It's not in a... It's not an influencing factor as to whether you can receive this or not. Um, I'm not sure why not. And I think for some of the people that I've spoken to, um, that is of concern. Are there still questions or holes in this legislation which need clarification or more public discussion or more public understanding, do you think? Or is it really one of those things where it's been in the works for such a long time, it's been looked at from every angle, and now it's sort of decision time. We either go ahead with it or we don't. What's being asked of the Kiwi population is to know the law, to assess the law, to compare it and know it's robust, safe, protective while allowing autonomy and choice. And that's something that an average Kiwi, you know, how we expected to know those things. So it's a huge ask, especially when many of us, most of us, don't understand what is already legal. So, yeah, some of the, the standout concerns from experts I interviewed included that no cooling off period. Many other countries have cooling off periods. Uh, this is like a set time between making the decision and it starting to be implemented. New Zealand's legislation doesn't make this compulsory and the process from request to administration could be as little as four days. Though, of course, you can change your mind during that time. Not having that space for a person to reason out and, and move past perhaps an emotional triggered response. Um, as mentioned as well, the lack of testing for mental illness or mental health, um, that's, that's quite a predominant concern. And Carolee says her initial reaction to the bill was that she was in favour of it. But having researched it, she's changed her mind and will be voting no. And now we come to cannabis. Back home now, and the government and the Drug Foundation say they are committed to keeping the public informed ahead of the cannabis referendum so that fear-mongering and fake news is kept to a minimum. The Cannabis Legalisation and Control Bill can be read in full on the referendums.co.nz website, all 154 pages of it. The thing is, most people can't be bothered reading 154 pages. Helpfully, Massey University's Dr Marta Reichert has... She explains that unlike the end-of-life choice bill, the cannabis referendum is non-binding. 
the government can do whatever they want with the outcome. They may want to go through this this bill and put it through the parliament and pass it into law, or they just may want to ignore it. Now, the coalition government has signalled it will honour the result of the referendum. Should National win the election and the government change, it's less certain as the party hasn't promised to pass the bill, but not doing so would put them in politically dicey waters, especially if it passes by a large majority. But if we vote in favour of legalisation, the bill will go through all the usual stages, its first, second and third readings at Parliament, and a select committee process where people can write in and suggest changes. But let's assume that the current bill was passed without changes. This is really unlikely, by the way. But for the sake of argument, what would that mean in terms of what you can buy, who you can sell it to, where you can use it, and so on? The main premise is that the bill proposes to legalise use, possession, and sale of cannabis. People aged 20 years old and over, it would be legal for them to use, possess, and buy cannabis from licensed suppliers. So the government would license commercial companies that will sell cannabis products in retail stores. This is sort of like how only certain places can sell alcohol, except the proposed cannabis law is a bit stricter. Uh, Supermarkets and dairies, for example, won't be able to sell it. Now, you would also be able to grow cannabis at your own home, and you could grow two plants, And if you share your household with other people, you can grow maximum four plants per household. Now, I don't think it's very likely that the bill would pass as it is. So I think it's likely that there will be some tweaks. And I think it's actually good because it's it's an opportunity for us to think through how we can make this regime better. There are grey areas here. For example, advertising. In the bill, advertising marijuana is prohibited. But it's not that simple. Like, what is an ad? What about Instagram posts? What about expos? Is there room for clarity here? So advertising is prohibited under this proposed bill, so no advertising at all. But, you know, there is a difference between advertising and marketing. And as you mentioned, the whole social media uh, sphere, that, that, that offers a lot of workarounds around how, how you can creatively advertise. Is there acknowledgement in this bill of the negative side effects of consuming cannabis and particularly of smoking cannabis? The government has the power to control price, right? There's going to be controls on the location of retailers. Smoking in public places will be continued to be prohibited. So we see, I think this reflects and illustrates that policymakers are considering these issues and that we don't want to encourage new users. Now, contrary to this, is the fact that the bill essentially creates and enables a new commercial industry that wants to encourage new users because if you establish a business, you want your business to grow. And that probably means that we are likely to see commercial industry to lobby and potentially erode some of those public health restrictions that are put in place in the bill. So it's a matter of balancing these public health restrictions uh, with, you know, the risks of creating the new commercial industry. 
if cannabis is legalised and then taxed, is any of that tax ring-fenced to help people who are dealing with cannabis-related issues? Yes, so there are special provisions, again, in the law, that portion of the tax, and there are special levies that are supposed to go to um, what the bill calls harm reduction um, activities. So that includes um, putting this money back into health, maybe um, you know, extending the drug treatment that we know we don't have enough drug treatments in the regions. That's something that the regions could benefit from from that tax um, that would come through um, sale of legal cannabis. A mother who gives her son cannabis for his violent seizures is terrified he'll be without medicine after what growers call a massive aerial cull by police. Medical cannabis campaigners say upwards of a 1,000 plants were poisoned in a Northland drop last month, cutting the supply to hundreds of people who rely on the illegal crop for medicinal purposes. Cannabis has been criminalised for a long time and there are certain communities and, and groups of people that have uh, been really disadvantaged by that criminalisation. Um, and, and you raise an interesting point about something called social equity provisions. Can you just explain what are those provisions? Social equity provisions under this bill aim to recognise that there are communities that have been disproportionately affected by cannabis prohibition and perhaps make inclusion of these communities in the legal regime easier. So, for example, there is a special category of licenses under this bill, which is called micro-cultivation licenses. So this is for small-scale producers. So there will be a separate license for those. And that, in theory, aims to facilitate transition of people who may be growing today illegally, but who would like to get a license and work in the legal cannabis regime. Now, also, there, there are provisions which say that during granting of licenses, the cannabis regulatory authority will have to consider criteria such as the extent to which a company is partnering with disadvantaged communities or promoting employment for disadvantaged communities, including Maori. Are there any big areas or big questions that um, remain to be answered or, or that could be refined down from your point of view when, when you look at this? Mm-hmm. The precise level of excise tax, we don't know what it is yet. Um, the issues around potency, so the bill, the maximum potency that the bill proposes at the moment for dried cannabis herbs for smoking is 15% THC. Now, it is at the top level of what's currently on the black market. So, you know, why are we starting with the top level? Um, I say that we should start maybe below the top level, what we're seeing in the black market, and we can always put it up. I'm sure, you know, there will be lobby to, to, to have the higher potency products. I think we should start low and go slow. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. 
Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Dr. Marta Raichert and Carolise Trace. Ka kite anō. <laughs>